the Popey Podcast You Didn't Know You Needed, where we talk history through Pope-colored glasses and some of the craziest, most popular stories you've never heard of. It's a real joy for us to welcome you all here. I would like to invite each of you to listen. Do not be afraid. P.A. Jesu Domine. This is a popular popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. My name is Greg, and this is episode 0.14, Something About Mary. This episode, at last, continues our world-building episodes, where we take a look at Catholicism as a whole and its origins in order to ensure everyone has a pair of Pope-colored glasses to use for the main show, even if they weren't previously familiar with Catholicism. I am, of course, aware that the majority of my audience will already have some or possibly a lot of familiarity with Catholicism, but I am also aware of an odd quirk of human behavior where folks will very often want to go deeper into topics they already know, hence why certain historical topics get covered ad nauseum while others' more obscure ones languish. Further, I am to cater not only to the majority, but to all. If all this Catholic stuff is news to you, welcome. Devoting the first few years of my podcast to making sure you don't get too lost is 1,000% worth it. If you're super familiar with Catholicism already, well, odds are you either love all of my takes, in which case it's similarly 1,000% my pleasure to help you find someone you agree with consistently, or, more likely, You disagree with some or all of my takes on these things, and I can assure you that your displeasure is also totally worth it, because I'm not above rankling those I disagree with. I'm especially looking at you, Chris. The fun we have. Okay, so that's the broad strokes. To get to the, I guess, the narrow strokes? So far, the world-building episodes have been broken up into seven episodes focused on the world of the First Testament which you probably know as the Old Testament, but I'm going to tend to call the First Testament in part to annoy you and in part to emphasize how its influence lives on, not only through the Second Testament, in a pattern that is pretty clear, but also beyond, even into the modern day, a pattern which is, well, also pretty clear. After all, as they say, there's nothing new under the sun, which, yes, is a phrase that comes from the First Testament. Unfortunately, I also have humanitarian reasons for emphasizing First and Second Testament as opposed to Old and New Testament, as anti-Semitism is once again on the rise. As we navigate the split between Christianity and Judaism in our narrative, we'll have more to say on the often fraught, to put it mildly, relationship between the two. Anyways, after the spiritually significant total of seven episodes covering the First Testament, we switched gears and tracked the development of ancient Rome, from legend to kingdom to republic, and, after a not particularly spiritually significant total of five episodes, we reached the dawn of New Testament times in that narrative thread. I suppose I could argue the five in the Roman numerals is V for victory, which the Romans were all about. In fact, I'm pretty sure I already pretty flimsily argued that in one of the development diaries I put out to fill the gap between the last real episode and this one. But hey, I think I also indicated there wasn't going to be anything in the development diaries that was critical for following along with the main show, so I might as well rehash that here for the full group, not just the Giga Chad completists among you. 
Now, speaking of the last real episode, uh, that one was a relative standalone if part of a broader series can be considered a standalone. Probably not, but you get what I mean. Rather than being a seven or five episode arc like the First Testament or Rome, respectively, world building episode 13 was a review of what happened in the Holy Land between the end of the First Testament, and by that I mean the end of the Catholic take on the First Testament, so including the first two books of the Maccabees, and the Second Testament. In short, it was more or less an overview of the Hasmonean Kingdom. I had an absolute blast with it from start to finish, so if you missed it, hit pause now and go check it out. We'll wait. Alright, welcome back Hasmonean enthusiasts. Now it's time to finally venture boldly into the final and longest sub-series of our world-building episodes. No fewer than 20 episodes dedicating to exploring the new, aka Second Testament. And no more than 20 episodes doing that. So, yeah, 20 episodes exploring the Second Testament. And that number isn't random. You see, we'll be slotting in different pieces of Catholicism wherever they kind of sort of seem to fit, much like the approach we took with the First Testament. And what could possibly make it more clear that we're going to be obnoxiously Catholic about this than to tie every episode of this miniseries to one of the 20 mysteries of the Rosary? Nothing. Nothing could be more obnoxiously Catholic, so that's what we'll do. Plus, that will give us a nice, not round or even even, but nevertheless numerologically significant total of 33 world-building episodes. Which, cool. I like it. So I'm gonna do it. In fact, I have slash may have already done it. <laughs> uh, just kidding. I wrote this part of the script when I was still naively hoping that it might become true by the time I actually record. Uh, no, it hasn't come true. This is the only episode that's ready. But we'll get there. Okay. Anyways, uh, we should probably get started, since for an episode titled something about Mary. So far, this episode has remarkably little about Mary in it. And for what it's worth, I did go out of my way to sit down with Vice Pope Mrs. Popular History and watch the classic 1998 rom-com There's Something About Mary as research for the show. I even went back and rewatched Mary Poppins in case the phrase was a nod to that 1964 classic. Turns out, as near as I can tell, it wasn't. But let me tell you, the only thing more intimidating than researching Roman history, while fully aware that a great many people dedicate their whole lives to knowing more about it than you will ever know, and they will absolutely be more than happy to roast you for getting anything wrong, is knowing that that's even more true of Diz nerds. It is what it is. Now's as good a time as any to remind you that you are welcome and I dare say encouraged to email the show with any fact checks or other messages using popularhistory at gmail.com. That's popular with an E. Get it? It's a Pope pun. Okay, yeah, you probably do get it given that you managed to find this show somehow, and I've also made that joke basically every episode. Okay, so we're like a solid 10 minutes in, and so far I've managed to recap the previous episodes, 
make fun of how much time I'm wasting getting to the point, spend too much time talking about the title of the episode, plug the show's email, and now making fun of how much time I'm wasting again. Great. Hey, I know. How about we actually get into explaining what the new, aka Second Testament, is? The Second Testament, much like the First Testament, is a series of books written by a number of different authors over a number of years. Unlike the First Testament, that number of years is relatively small, about a hundred as opposed to a thousand, and there is basically universal agreement among Christians as to which books belong in the Second Testament. Even the, and I use this word with nothing but love, quirky Orthodox Tawahodo Church only differs when it comes to what's known as the broader canon. Their narrow canon agrees with the rest of contemporary Christianity that there are 27 books in the New Testament, which, when speaking pretentiously, are named in the following prevailing but not as universally agreed upon order, the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Mark, the Gospel according to Luke, the Gospel according to John, the Book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles, the Epistle of St. Paul to the Romans. Epistle being a fancy word for letter, and I'm just going to keep using fancy titles here. The first epistle of St. Paul to the Corinthians. The second epistle of St. Paul to the Corinthians. The epistle of St. Paul to the Galatians. The epistle of St. Paul to the Ephesians. The epistle of St. Paul to the Philippians. The epistle of St. Paul to the Colossians. The first epistle of St. Paul to the Thessalonians. The second epistle of St. Paul to the Thessalonians. The first epistle of St. Paul to St. Timothy. The second epistle of St. Paul to St. Timothy. The epistle of St. Paul to St. Titus. The epistle of St. Paul to St. Philemon. The epistle to the Hebrews. The epistle of St. James. The first epistle of St. Peter. The second epistle of St. Peter. The first epistle of St. John. The second epistle of St. John. The third epistle of St. John. The epistle of St. Jude. St. John's Apocalypse, or simply the Apocalypse, or the Book of Revelation, or Revelations. Frankly, this last one has a lot of possible names. And I did throw in saint at every opportunity, just to keep things annoyingly Catholic. Also, the word epistle is often skipped. The name of the sender might also be skipped. So people will say, for example, instead of the first epistle of St. Paul to the Thessalonians, they will probably just say first Thessalonians. Now, to hit on some vocabulary you should definitely pick up on in this episode, I'll note that, as you may have noticed, those first four books are referred to as Gospels, which by some etymological trick I am for once going to resist the urge to get into, is a reference to them containing the quote-unquote good news about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts basically continues where the Gospels left off, especially the Gospel of Luke, which tradition holds, and even modern scholars agree, was very likely written by the same author, making the two basically a two-part work that John more or less found its way between. And actually, the location of John between Luke and Acts gives us an excuse to compare and contrast tradition and modern scholarship 
on the origins of the Second Testament. Tradition is fairly straightforward, holding that the Gospels were written by the individuals they're named after, in the order that they're found in every biblical canon I've ever come across. And that's fantastic, because since we're here to build Pope-colored glasses, we'll be going with the traditional interpretation as our default, which is going to make life so much easier than it would be if we were obliged to take modern scholarship seriously. So what is that modern scholarship concerning the Gospels? Alright, I'll go into unnecessary detail just this once as a treat. Don't get used to it. Modern scholarship holds that the oldest of the canonical Gospels is likely the Gospel according to Mark. They simultaneously tend to reject the traditional notion that St. Mark the Evangelist wrote the Gospel of Mark, which is a bit rude since the original use of the term evangelist basically meant guy who wrote one of the Gospels. I mean, someone wrote it, right? So just call that person the evangelist. It would make more sense if they were insisting that they knew it was actually someone named Kevin or Tracy or whatever who wrote it, but the cowards don't actually propose another name. If you don't know who wrote it, how do you know their name wasn't Mark? And again, whoever wrote it, it's fair enough to call them, insert name here, the evangelist, since again, that just means who wrote a gospel, at least in the older use. These days it's loosened up and now can refer to anyone looking to spread the message contained in the gospel, including such characters as televangelists. If you aren't familiar with televangelists, don't sweat them. They tend to hate the Pope, so we're going to do our best to simply dismiss them as uncool heretics for the purposes of the show. We're pro-Pope here. Authorship aside, you might notice a discrepancy with the moderns putting Mark first chronologically. Traditionally, that honor went to St. Matthew, with a reasonably venerable theory proposing the existence of a Hebrew or at least Aramaic version of the Gospel of Matthew which would have fit in with Aramaic being the spoken language of many of the Jews in the Holy Land in Jesus' day, though Greek was common as well, especially among non-Jews, and it was Greek that would be the default language of the Second Testament, except for a few stray words and phrases and possibly accepting Matthew, continuing the Greek influence that had begun in earnest under Alexander. In this traditional view, the New Testament was largely written in the order I gave it previously, with the Gospels coming before the letters and the Apocalypse bringing up the rear. And yes, I like calling it the Apocalypse instead of the Book of Revelation in this context, not only because it sounds freaking awesome, but also because, in my experience, the Apocalypse of John is the more traditional name for it, and we're specifically discussing the more traditional views. So for the purposes of the show, the Bible, much like the world, ends with the Apocalypse. And if you're lost again, don't worry. We'll dig into what is meant by the Apocalypse in just uh, 19 short episodes. The glaring exception to the traditional ordering being seen by traditional folks as chronological is, of course, the Gospel of John, which traditionally was written by the youngest apostle, uh, let's see here, John, when he was an advanced age around the year 100, which is something we discussed towards the end of episode 1, actually, back in the day. That would place it after the traditional timing of the various epistles, aka letters, just as a reminder. Anyways, as you might have guessed, the Gospel of John was placed up with the other Gospels to keep the canonical Gospels together at the front of the Second Testament. It is a bit of a different beast, though, or perhaps I should call it a bird of a different feather, since St. John the Evangelist 
is traditionally represented by an eagle when using the imagery lifted from the trippy first chapter of Ezekiel. While we're tangenting in that direction, St. Matthew is traditionally represented by a man, St. Mark a lion, often a winged one, and St. Luke an ox, also often winged. In the symbolism, that is, not in real life, in case you guys thought I was giving you some fresh hot takes on biology. John is of such a different character from the other Gospels that the moderns have a specific word to describe the other three, calling them synoptic, which is Greek for seeing everything together, because they have a lot of commonalities with one another, leading the moderns to conclude that they're developmentally connected. Like I mentioned earlier, the most common modern theory is that Mark came first, sometime after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, or at least sometime after the destruction of the temple became fairly foreseeable in 67 AD, when the Jewish revolt that culminated in the destruction of the temple kicked off. This is because of Mark chapter 13, where Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple, saying, quote, Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Traditionally, this is a prophecy. Decades away from fulfillment in around the 40s AD, when the Synoptic Gospels were originally written. For the boring, sciencey, and analytical modernists, however, there is no such thing as prophecy, so it's more likely evidence that the Gospels were written after the referenced event. Then again, if you ask me, and let's be honest, you're listening to this podcast, so that's the equivalent of asking me, if you ask me, it's not like it would have been too hard to imagine the temple being destroyed in Jesus' day. After all, it had happened before. The temple of the time was the second temple, with the first having been destroyed in the lead-up to the Babylonian exile. Then again, it was an imposing structure. One description noted it as the largest building in the Roman world at the time, which, I mean, maybe? Feel free to write in if you know one way or the other on that. For now, don't quote me unless you want to quote my hot-take opinion that one doesn't have to believe in prophecy, to believe that Jesus may indeed have predicted the destruction of the temple decades before it happened. Buildings come and go, after all, and it's not like it happened the next day. Anyways, after pegging Mark at 70-ish AD, the moderns give Matthew and Luke a few years to form out of the material in Mark, plus elements from another source creatively called the Q source. Q standing for quell, um, being German for source, and I didn't even try with actual German pronunciations. I have no idea how close I am. Anyways, very original German speakers calling your source, source. Q theories are pretty varied, with some arguing that Q was itself a single source that disappeared in favor of the canonical gospels, while others arguing that it was actually a collection of different sources, and with still others arguing that there never was an actual Q document. Generally speaking, the Q hypothesis tends to cover material found in both the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, but not in Mark, with the idea that passages that are basically copies of one another were probably lifted from some common previous source. And if it wasn't Mark, then it was some other source, which, again, they cleverly codenamed Quella, aka Source, or Q for short. Anyways, these passages the ones found in Matthew and Luke, but not in Mark, tend to be sayings of Jesus, so it's fair to think of Q as a selection of sayings. But oddly, the passages that are some of the strongest evidence of this 
sayings source theory are so similar that in general modern scholars argue that if there was a common source it was a written one instead of an oral one since those of you familiar with the telephone game may recall oral transmission is a lot fuzzier than written transmission take matthew 6 24 and luke 16 13 for example in matthew quote no one can serve two masters for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other you cannot serve god and wealth end quote and in luke quote no slave can serve two masters for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve god and wealth end quote props if you spotted the only difference no one versus no slave right at the beginning the rest is all identical that kind of consistency is seen to point to a written rather than an oral tradition like i said though of course there are always counter arguments after all spoiler alert but this sample text is words from the person understood to be god in human form even orally one would assume there would be a lot of effort put into remembering the exact words or if you want to take yet another angle you could always go edgier and are you jesus never existed and these words were just written from the start as a made-up speech that got spread around that option is a bridge too far even for most modern scholars but it's a view with an unsurprisingly growing following in the end you can find folks arguing just about anything under the sun if you look hard enough including one of my favorite theories fandom time in which the years 614 to 911 ad were made up as part of a grand conspiracy for the purpose of this show we're just going to go ahead and say that jesus existed bold claim i know even the moderns i'll keep referring to will be presented as taking that much for granted but this is as good a time as any to point out that contemporary scholars are indeed far from unanimous on that or any other point and not just because it's hard to make an academic career out of agreeing with everyone else so academia naturally encourages competing views also by the way everyone is going to insist that the majority of real scholars agree with their views that's kind of human nature that's how the true scotsman argument works okay so we've built up to another one of my patented where was i moments let's do a little recap while we're here the second testament aka the new testament starts with four books aka the gospels each being a self-contained narrative of the life death and spoiler alert resurrection of jesus who christians believe was the son of god and the messiah sent to save us from our sins each account has its own flavor with traditional perspectives tending to agree on an ordering of matthew mark luke and john including holding out the possibility of a hebrew text of matthew while moderns tend to place mark as the oldest with matthew and luke being derived from both mark and possibly a collection of sayings of jesus known as the q source then they all agree that the gospel of john brings up the rear with tradition having the gospel of john being written by well john while the modern spice things up by thinking of a group project handed in by a collection of folks they labeled the joanine community now i don't know about you but basically every group project i've ever done has had the bulk of it done by one person regardless of the size of the so-called community doing it so take that moderns 
we're back to single source. Either way, I'll agree that this particular Johnny project, whether individual or group, was handed in later than the rest, with the Gospel of John being dated to the late 1st or early 2nd century AD in discussions among the moderns. After the Gospels comes the Book of Acts, which both tradition and moderns agree was written as a companion piece to the Gospel of Luke by the same author, which covers various events during the first few decades after the resurrection, or the alleged resurrection if that's your cup of tea, I guess. Speaking of the resurrection, obviously that notion got a lot of people talking, not only in the form of the Gospels and the Book of Acts, but also in various letters found in the New Testament between those and the Apocalypse slash Book of Revelation. Well over half of these Second Testament letters, 13 of the 21, are attributed to St. Paul, with tradition holding that he wrote every blessed word, and with the moderns, perhaps unsurprisingly, tending to doubt the authenticity of several of what are known as the Pauline epistles, especially 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, which they hold as the product of some later author. Another three of the traditional Pauline epistles are debated among scholars when it comes to whether they are truly Pauline or not, with those being 2 Thessalonians, Ephesians, and Colossians. Which actually leaves us with a relatively robust seven letters that pretty much everyone agrees were written by the actual St. Paul, which isn't bad considering, keep in mind, some modern scholars argue Jesus Christ never existed. St. Paul is someone even those sorts can get behind. If you're wondering how that works, the basic idea is that St. Paul made up Jesus to give credence to the ideas he wanted to spread in his letters. Not exactly kosher theology from a Catholic perspective. Which, I mean, not exactly kosher pretty well sums up a fair amount of Paul's theology, given his rejection of the law, including in his universally accepted letters, that is, in Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1st Thessalonians, and Philemon. More on that later. The first Second Testament letter not generally attributed to Paul or some Paul mimic is the letter to the Hebrews, which also happens to be the only one that is traditionally anonymous, excepting, of course, when folks still lump it in as one of Paul's anyways. After that come seven epistles that are sometimes called the Catholic epistles, though that term in this context should not be confused with Catholicism, the religion. Here it means general. We're also going to see it meaning universal, like in the Nicene Creed where it talks about the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, phrasing that definitely stood out to me the first time I heard it in a distinctly Protestant setting. And yes, more on creeds later. These seven Catholic letters have four authors traditionally and are named after those authors, starting with James, which moderns agree was written by a James, but not that James, first and second Peter, where moderns give a shrug at the first and say maybe it was written by that Peter, but that Peter definitely didn't write second Peter. Then there's the three letters of St. John, all of which moderns attribute to the later work of that prolific Johannine community. And finally, we have Jude, which the moderns tend to attribute to a Jude, but not that Jude. That business again. And of course, the whole Second Testament is then rounded off by the Apocalypse, meaning either John or the Johannine community gets another writing credit, depending on your view. Traditionally, the Apocalypse is not only at the end because it was written last, but also because it rather famously talks about 
the end. You know, the end of the world, the end of time, all that jazz. Uh, quite possibly actual jazz, given the sheer number of trumpets involved, though really I think the best end of the world challenge track would be something more along the lines of, say, ska. Very trumpety either way. Okay, so there you have it. We've reached the end of the Bible. It's been a long run, but we got there. Remember, our email is popular with an E. Uh, oh, wait, you mean we should go through the actual content? I'm, we kind of did, given the whole life, death, and resurrection line I used talking about the Gospels, but yeah, I guess I might as well be more specific since I kept promising 20 episodes in this allegedly mini-series, and I've still got a lot of terms found in the glossary of the Catechism of the Catholic Church to define, not to mention explaining what the Catechism of the Catholic Church even is. So, let's dive into the Gospel narratives and go from there. Kind of, sort of. If you listen to my hiatus episodes, you'll know I'm planning to frame this whole Second Testament business around the mysteries of the Rosary, and like I just hinted, I've got a catechism's worth of glossary terms to be sure to define, too. Now, I actually had rosary itself down as one of my glossary terms to cover today, but I'm laughing my butt off at the idea of not actually going into detail on what the rosary itself is until we get to our discussion of traditional prayers in episode 0.28, a mere 14 episodes from now. And part of the point of this whole deal is to make myself laugh, so that's exactly what I'm going to do. That said, I will note that the first joyful mystery the one this episode is framed around, is the Annunciation. And your reading assignments for today, should you choose to accept them, are laid out in the show notes and are frankly pretty short. And we'll have them in the show notes for future episodes as well. They're all going to have reading assignments. That's part of what I've been doing, is breaking up the whole New Testament into chunks. Don't worry if you don't have a Bible handy, as I'll be quoting what's critical. But it wouldn't be the worst idea to pause for a minute here and give those things a read then have it nearby for reference. Conveniently, Annunciation is another one of the glossary terms I had on the old to-do list today, so let me just quote how the Catechism defines it. Annunciation, the visit of the angel Gabriel to the Virgin Mary to inform her that she was to be the mother of the Savior. After giving her consent to God's word, Mary became the mother of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. End quote. Now, we've come across some of this before, the concept of angels being fairly well-rooted in the First Testament and all. In fact, Gabriel himself was probably the angel clad in white who explained stuff to Daniel, though the figure isn't named, tradition is pretty firm on that point. Mary, especially as we see her here with her title as the Virgin Mary, is a familiar figure to those with even a passing knowledge of Catholicism. Though, given that I am, for the sake of argument and inclusivity, assuming you don't possess even such a passing knowledge, I will note that a virgin, uh, turn off and listen later if you have younger ears, three, two, one, a virgin is a person who has never had sex. And if you're wondering how such a person could become the mother of Savior, i.e. the Messiah, another First Testament callback, by the way, if you're wondering how such a person could become a mother, you're not alone. Indeed, Luke tells us Mary had the same question herself in Luke chapter 1, verse 34. Quote, How can this be, since I am a virgin? End quote. Of course, the answer is already contained in our glossary definition, which indicate it happened, quote, by the power of the Holy Spirit. End quote. Now, if you were a bit annoyed by me throwing the S-E-X word around with precious little warning a minute ago, 
Here's a bit more warning as the next couple minutes we'll go into more grown-up detail as we look at a couple misconceptions surrounding the whole conception. The first one is tamer, so we'll start with that in case you need a little bit more time before we start talking the dynamics of consent, which, for what it's worth, should not be a totally taboo topic for any age. Anyways, let's get this shockingly common misconception out of the way. The Annunciation and the Immaculate Conception are two different concepts. Yes, we're talking about conception here, and yes, I've heard the argument that Jesus is the answer to every theological question, and jokes about trying to pass theology exams by simply writing Jesus over and over do make the rounds. But in the end, when it comes to the Immaculate Conception, the conceptee is Mary, not Jesus. Welcome to the four Marian dogmas. I'm not going to keep you in suspense. The four Marian dogmas are the Immaculate Conception, which we're getting into in a moment, Perpetual Virginity, which will be central to our next myth, Mother of God, which we'll cover in depth in episode 0.16, The Whole World Being at Peace, and Assumption, which, if you're assuming I'm going to make lots of lame puns about, you are correct. Tune into or out of episode 0.32 for that. Anyways, for the Immaculate Conception, let's go to the source, which controversially isn't the Bible. At least, not directly or most forcefully. Instead, wouldn't you know it, we're actually going to bring up a Pope on the Popular History Podcast. Crazy, right? In 1854, Pope Pius IX declared the following in an apostolic constitution titled Ineffabilis Deus. Quote, We declare, pronounce, and define that the doctrine which holds that the Most Blessed Virgin Mary, in the first instance of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved, free from all stain of original sin, is a doctrine revealed by God, and therefore to be believed, firmly and constantly, by all the faithful. End quote. Now, before you try and derail me by asking what an apostolic constitution even is, just know that we'll get into that later. And for now, just note how very, very official that language is. This is one of two pronouncements that are universally accepted as popes using their whole papal infallibility thing, which we'll get into more later. To be clear, folks who argue that the two instances are the only times papal infallibility has been applied are what I like to call wrong. But either way, everyone agrees that if you're the sort to go in for papal infallibility, and for the purposes of this show, we all are that sort, then you got to agree with what Pope Pius just laid out there. To somewhat more succinctly repeat it, here's the Immaculate Conception defined again. Quote, The Most Blessed Virgin Mary, in the first instance of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved free from all stain of original sin. End quote. To put it more in layman's terms, Mary, Jesus' mom, was saved from all sin by her son from the get-go. Now, if you've got a basic grasp of how things like time and family relationships work, you may have some follow-up questions. And the basic answer is, 
God did it, and God is outside of time. In particular, Catholic teaching holds that Jesus Christ is uncreated, and in fact was around for creation itself, as I believe we covered in our first world-building episode. So it's a bit mind-bending, but not that far of a detour to picture him intervening at the very beginning of his mother's life, preserving her from all sin, including original sin, at her conception, which, because of that intervention, came to be known as the Immaculate Conception. And yes, it's fair to say that over 1,800 years is a pretty long time to wait for a teaching to be established, but one, it's not like Pius IX was pulling this tradition out of thin air except for the part where he was making it binding on all Christians, and two, making things binding is kind of the Pope's job as we have seen and will continue to see. When I say it wasn't coming out of thin air, I mean we can trace this tradition back almost to the Apostolic Age, with 2nd century folks like Saints Justin Martyr and Irenaeus with their New Eve stuff. Which I get isn't good enough for some, and accordingly I'm not insisting any of you believe in the Immaculate Conception. But for the purpose of the show, we're following Pope Pius's lead, and he was, as we just saw, exactly the type to insist that everyone agree with him. And spoiler alert, we haven't heard the last of Pius IX. To call him the most impactful pope since Peter may actually be an understatement. Although, it actually probably isn't an understatement, because it's quite the statement. Okay, so we've got Mary, conceived without sin. The nuts and bolts of Mary's conception and childhood, including her parents' names, uh, Saints Joachim and Anne, by the way, are actually described in the Apocryphal Gospel of James, which is a good read, and you can find it online if you like, but I don't really want to get too bogged down with it here. As a reminder, an apocryphal book is one that was a possible candidate for making into the Bible, but didn't. For more on that, go back to episode 0.7, the Deuterocanon. There really is more to explore here. I nearly did a full episode just on this, and Martin Luther, of all people, had a particular devotion to St. Anne. And it ties into my favorite gaffs banners, the Carmelites, but it's just too much for today. We've got to move forward, and in this case, moving forward means getting weirdly focused on the virginity of a 12-year-old. Or, you know what, let's just make things slightly more comfortable and focus on Mary's status as the 40-year-old virgin. Because, whatever age we're talking about, Catholic teaching holds that Our Lady was a virgin. Oh, and I'm going to call Mary Our Lady sometimes now, too. She has lots of titles within Catholicism and more broadly, um, so get used to that. The male equivalent, Our Lord, is a reference to Jesus, perhaps most famously in the Year of Our Lord formulation. Anyways, back to Mary's virginity. The Virgin is one of those Marian titles I mentioned, and calling her the Virgin Mary is an easy way of distinguishing her from the very many other Catholic women and even some Catholic men who also bear that name, Vice Pope Mrs. Popular History included. Mary's virginity is indeed meant in the physical sense of never having had sex, which has always caused a fair amount of discussion given the brothers of Jesus mentioned in various places in the New Testament, including James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon. Now, some of those names may sound familiar to you as apostles, and there is traditional support for such identifications, but it's not a clear thing, and the Catholic perspective on this, in keeping with the perpetual virginity teaching, is that we're not talking full brothers anyways, but rather either cousins or, say, like half-brothers from a previous marriage of St. Joseph. St. Joseph being 
Mary's husband, by the way, in case you were wondering. We'll get into that more in a future episode. Now, dismissing folks clearly identified as brothers of Jesus as something other than that has always rubbed some folks the wrong way. But consider the fact that the same word, Adelphoi, has precedent for describing other relationships in both the Second Testament, such as where St. Paul describes Jesus appearing to 500 brothers, who most certainly would not all have had the same mother, and in Greek editions of the First Testament, such as describing the relationship between Abraham and Lot, who were actually uncle and nephew. In the end, yes, if your only anchor is the Bible, I think it's fair to err on the side of taking it as literally as possible. But even then, one should allow for other interpretations if they don't conflict with the text. But also, for Catholics, and therefore for this podcast as well, the Bible isn't the only authority, as tradition has an important role and is maintained by the Pope and the bishops in union with him. In this case, the tradition was codified much less recently than the Immaculate Conception, at least by the Council of Ephesus in 431, or possibly even earlier. And yes, I'll talk about what councils are in due course. Okay, so we've got the so-called Brothers of Jesus relegated to the status of cousins or half-brothers. The Gospel of James I mentioned earlier was half-brothers, by the way. But what about Jesus himself? Last I checked, having one biological child is just about as definitive a proof of non-virginity as having several biological children. Well, let's circle back to the Annunciation. Remember, that's that scene we were talking about where Mary agreed to God's plan that she was going to become Mama to a little baby Messiah. You know, before we went on this extended tour of how the Immaculate Conception is a different thing. The Annunciation is, in effect, Jesus' conception. Being done by miraculous means, it didn't involve any of the standard birds and bees type mechanisms. But surely, you say, surely delivering that baby would have involved tearing the hymen, that conventional sign of physical virginity? Well, that isn't actually a settled matter within Catholicism, but there are theories because of course there are. Why wouldn't we obsess over that kind of detail? More specifically, why wouldn't the Gospel of James, also known as the Proto-Evangelium of James, by the way, since that's a fancy way of describing how it's basically a Gospel prequel, why wouldn't the apocryphal Proto-Evangelium of James obsess over that detail? Seriously, that text is very, very heavily invested in the idea that Mary was always a virgin in every sense of the word, including a doubting Thomas-type moment where a midwife confirms Mary's hymen is intact even post-birth. There was a cloud, and a cave, and a flash of light, all that good, miracle stuff. In the end, I'm glad the Proto-Evangelium of James didn't make the cut. It's handy as a way to point to an early Christian tradition of Mary's perpetual virginity, but I really don't see any moral lessons that can be gained from studying it, and the focus on the physicality of said virginity is just plain weird. There is something deeper at work here, though. In the end, that hyper-focus on Mary's purity, and... That really is the theme of the whole Gospel of James, is pointing to a higher reality, a metaphysical one, where Mary is the new Eve, ready to remake mankind alongside the new Adam, her son, Jesus Christ. After all, spoiler alert, the central message of the Second Testament is that God sent Jesus to make the world right again after the fall. In Catholic tradition, Mary's yes to God at the start of the Second Testament is placed next to Eve's yes to Satan at the start of the First Testament, with Mary's yes to God, also known as her fiat, Latin for let it be, though I can pretty well guarantee she wasn't speaking Latin, with that fiat opening the door to salvation. 
Now, I was originally going to make one of my patented oblique references here, talking about how Mary's Fiat inspired a car manufacturer, which turns out it didn't, that's just a coincidental acronym, or how you can catch Mary saying let it be in a song by a popular band, and I suppose I did just reference those things after all, but really, we need to take a moment, because I got myself curious about what Mary actually would have said in response to the angel in her native Aramaic, and whether it would be a word I would recognize. And, well, amen. Amen is the go-to Aramaic phrase meaning yes. Which is pretty cool. After all, Catholics like myself say amen before we receive the Eucharist, which we believe is Christ's body. So, if Our Lady did say amen before receiving Christ's body into her body in the Incarnation, well, that's a pretty cool parallel. Unfortunately, I do have to caveat this, because Mary's original language response isn't preserved. Instead, we get a Greek translation. Does the Greek word used, I think it's a genoito, signal the original word would have been amen? Not really, in part because Mary gave more than a one-word reply. In full, we're told she said, quote, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. End quote. That's from Luke chapter 1, verse 38. So that's definitely more than just saying amen. But also, often enough, the word amen was left intact in Greek and even subsequently in Latin and English translations where it occurred. Amen is such a universally recognizable word in no small part because it was so very often untranslated. And yet, if it was used here, it was, for whatever reason, translated. But in the end, the sense of the meaning is not far. So be it. Let it be. May your word to me be fulfilled. Amen. So we have Mary's yes, right? Well, after a fashion. The theology would be a lot more straightforward if we could say Mary said yes to God's plan without hesitation and without pressure of any kind, and just leave it at that. But things simply aren't that straightforward. We've got hints of the First Testament younger brother syndrome here. It's not fleshed out, but it's present. Even with the helpful start of her Immaculate Conception, Mary isn't some macho hero striding confidently in and saving the day. Rather, she's something of a scared little girl. I know I'm probably going to get some flack for that description, but it's right there in the text. Quote, Mary was greatly troubled at his words, and wondered what sort of greeting this might be. End quote. Luke 1, 29. What words greatly troubled Mary? Well, quote, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. End quote. Luke 1, 28. So basically, the very idea that God has singled Mary out for a plan has Mary on edge. And yet, after it's explained to her, she still manages. Yes, manages. It wasn't a given, and it's not a knock on Mary to emphasize that. She still manages to say yes. Her asking for and receiving additional information about the plan lets us bring up the second common misconception about the Annunciation, namely that Mary had no choice in the matter. First, a content warning. Uh, we're going to talk about rape. Skip ahead uh, four minutes if you need to. There is a long-standing historical rumor that Mary was raped, specifically by a Roman soldier named Pantera. It would be easy to say, but that's just a rumor, and move on. But you know I'm not going to do that. Yet. Chunk chunk! 
in the Herodian kingdom, sexually based offenses were not considered especially heinous. There were no dedicated detectives to investigate what today would be considered vicious felonies, and no elite squad known as the Special Victims Unit. So we don't have their stories. Chunk chunk! We may not have their stories, but it's safe to say hundreds of rapes have gone unrecorded in every decent-sized polity in any given year of human history. I don't want to gloss over that. So, before we look at this particular case, let's have a moment of silence. Please reflect and pray if you can. Thank you. In the case of Miriam Bat Joachim, we actually do have something of a story in the form of that Pantera whisper, which we could trace back to the 2nd century Greek writer Celsus, whose work, The True Word, is the earliest known comprehensive criticism of Christianity. The True Word has not survived in whole, but we do have various portions of it that were quoted in a rebuttal text composed by Origen of Alexandria, titled simply, Against Celsus. The section in question says of Mary she was, quote, turned out by the carpenter who was betrothed to her, as she had been convicted of adultery and had a child by a certain soldier named Panthera. Later Jewish sources would take this up and troll Christians by labeling Jesus as Yeshu ben Pantera, aka Jesus son of Pantera, and I've certainly seen as much internet commentary on this as I have on pretty much any other topic coming within a mile of Christianity, so the rumor does persist. In fact, one scholar, James Tabor of the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, or formerly so, I guess he retired earlier this year. Anyways, Professor Tabor has argued in favor of the Pantera angle, specifically pointing to the exact tomb of one Tiberius Julius Abdes Pantera as evidence. That Pantera, and it was apparently a reasonably common name, that Pantera was a Roman Phoenician-born soldier in Sidon. His tombstone was found in Bingerbrook, Germany in 1859. There's no particular evidence connecting that Pantera to the Herodian kingdom, and though his birth and death dates check out, it would be awfully convenient if his tomb just happened to survive given his, no offense dude, uh, insignificance otherwise. Plus, for what it's worth, most other academics seem to disagree with Tabor. In any event, it's worth noting that Celsus, our earliest source, doesn't actually present this as a rape. And in fact, many of the later takes play up the idea of Jesus as a product of Mary's infidelity. But for real, we're talking about a soldier and a young girl here. And yes, setting Pantera aside now and moving forward, assuming there was no human father, the age thing... It is very likely that Mary was around 13 at the time. That's well below the age of consent anywhere these days. But this wasn't a sex thing. This isn't Zeus coming down because he saw a pretty mortal. Oh, and side note, the most unrealistic and ahistorical thing Disney has ever done is paint Zeus as a loving family man. Anyways, this was part of the plan for salvation. Yes, it uh, wound up with Mary being pregnant. So if you want to insist it's not, not a sex thing, I won't stand firm. But to focus too much on the specific mechanics here is to miss out on the overall point, possibly for a valid reason, but you're still missing out on the point. 
That said, hey, there's a tangent here, and I love tangents. So let's do a quick mechanical tangent. Two out of three members of the Trinity don't have DNA. The third, Jesus, would not have gotten his DNA from anywhere other than Our Lady. To be clear, church teaching doesn't exactly get clarified quickly, so as of now, I'm not aware of any official teaching on this, but most folks seem to tend to agree with that statement. DNA from Our Lady. Of course, that leads to the question of where Jesus' masculine aspects came from, since he wouldn't have had a Y chromosome by nature. It's possible God magicked one up for him, similar to how God miraculously creates every human soul, which I think we've talked about before, but yeah, the special creation of the soul is a specific established teaching, i.e. everyone's soul is specially created by God for them. Anyways, maybe God gave Jesus half his chromosomes, including a Y chromosome for masculine characteristics, or maybe it's just a mystery we don't need to dwell on, or maybe, as many on the left like to proclaim, maybe Jesus is trans. Look, I'm not here to troll. I'm here to present the topics and theories as they are relevant. We will talk more on LGBT plus stuff, especially on episode 0.18, The Model Family. But for today, we'll move on, allowing you all to create your headcanons about Jesus' DNA established as you see fit, with the caveat that, like I said, there is no official teaching I'm aware of here. For what it's worth, it's my stance that it's none of my business. We do have more mechanics to discuss on the other end of Mary's pregnancy, but let's save that for episode 0.16, The Whole World Being at Peace. Okay, so Mary is winding up pregnant for theological rather than biological reasons, and it's pretty clear that the reasons aren't biological because the plan isn't for Jesus to have offspring of his own. Rather, the plan is for him to suffer and die. Well, actually, I guess suffering and dying is part of the normal biological happening, so I guess that's not really a difference. The difference is Jesus isn't going to have kids. Oh wait, it's actually normal for a certain percentage of the population to support the continuation of the species in other ways than having a biological offspring of their own, so that's also biologically normal. Anyways, biological questions are getting aside, because we've got theology to focus on here, alright guys? Mary, did you know? No, Mary knew, to an extent, what was up with the idea of a messiah. It was what the Jews of her day, and the Jews of today, were and are waiting for. When the angel was dropping lines like, quote, he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, end quote, it's clear that this isn't a standard, you know, destiny for just a guy. But Mary didn't have questions about that part, presumably because she's already expecting the Messiah, and if you know you're expecting friends for dinner, you don't really have questions when they show up. Presumably, she would have asked what questions she had about the Messiah when she was first learning about him, but now her questions aren't about the Messiah. Rather, she asks that question we already discussed, about how she can be getting pregnant here when she's still a virgin. That's a fair question, to be sure. Though I can't help but note that her education would have presumably included the Septuagint text of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Quote, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall name him Emmanuel. End quote. I don't think it's likely that she was forgetting that passage. I think it's more the case that we're simply seeing the human response of someone who trusts God's plan, but is still understandably nervous about being cast into the spotlight and how it will impact her, especially since the spotlight is going to be on an unwed teen mother. That's rarely a kind spotlight.
And really, even though we know gospel means good news, it's not like the news Mary receives at the Annunciation is all feel-good stuff. There's a reason Mary's going to hear it prophesied in the next chapter that a sword is going to pierce her heart. She knows her son is going to be the Messiah, which is generally understood to be a good thing, as he's going to save the people of Israel, but she also would know about the suffering servant parts. Her son is going to suffer greatly. Unless, of course, we're going with she really was asleep for the whole Isaiah thing. Either way, Mary just had an angel show up and tell her that she's going to be the mother of the Messiah. That's some serious news. As soon as the angel departs, we're told she hurries over to her cousin Elizabeth, presumably to share that news. But that's a story for our next episode. Op.15, Locust Soup for the Nazarite Soul. Coming on November 20th, the Solemnity of Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe. It's great to be back, and I'll see you all then. In the meantime, God bless you all. Chunk Chung! Chunk Chung! Chunk Chung! Chunk Chung! Just chunk chunk until you're done. I can use them. Chunk Chung! Alright, that's all I got. Alright, love you. I love you too.